welcome to uh, Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, my name is Aileen Douglas. I'm the head of the School of English here, and it's my great pleasure uh, to introduce my recently acquired uh, colleague, uh, Dr. Ian Sanson, who is the uh, director of the Oscar Wilde Centre. Um, Ian came to us from the University of Warwick, uh, where he was professor of English, uh, and he has been uh, had a long uh, career. Uh, he's a novelist, broadcaster, critic, uh, an intellectual and a creative artist. Uh, his publications spanning over 15 books of fiction and non-fiction are extraordinarily uh, various. Uh, he's written a memoir, um, he's written a book on paper and elegy, um, and he's also written, or is in the process of writing, an extraordinarily um, ambitious uh, series of uh, crime uh, fictions, uh, the latest of which uh, was published uh, this year, um, Essex Poison, um, and, and more to come. So tonight, um, Ian is going to uh, be speaking to us about uh, William Trevor, a huge alas, and I know uh, William Trevor, of course, uh, a graduate of this university, though sadly we can't uh, claim him for the School of English ourselves. Um, but I know that uh, you, like me, will be uh, eager to hear uh, what uh, one practitioner has to say uh, in relation to William Trevor, who is, I think, a writer who is greatly esteemed um, and admired uh, by readers, not just uh, here, uh, but worldwide. So please welcome Ian Sutton. Let me say clearly uh, at the outset that I love William Trevor, and the word is not too strong, and it is not often that a man gets to make a declaration of love in front of so many people. It, it's been a while since I was married. Um, to be absolutely clear, I should explain that I never met William Trevor, I did not know William Trevor, and that the love of which I speak is what Aristotle defines as philia, that affection for those with whom we share common values, interests, and activities. It is that love that springs up when we do not feel ourselves to be entirely alone. C.S. Lewis, perhaps perhaps as deeply an unfashionable thinker now as one can imagine in literary and scholarly circles, which is, of course, why he appeals to me so much, and who is perhaps the opposite of Trevor in terms of many of his ideas and beliefs. C.S. Lewis remarks in his book, The Four Loves, that friendship is born at the moment when one man says to another, what, you too, I thought it was no one but myself. This is a love, like Trevor's work, that gives value to common feeling and to common feelings. So, let me explain the deep roots of my affection. So much rain fell in County Down in the autumn and winter of 2015 and early 2016 that the modest 6 by 8 shed where I have worked in my garden for almost 20 years, writing all of my books late at night and early in the morning, my shed sprang a leak. And before I could save them, most of my manuscripts and old floppy disks, this ages me, 
and many books were destroyed. And so I had to do what had to be done. I bagged everything up and took it all to the local dump. This little domestic deluge and its consequences made me think not of William Trevor, but of Wallace Stevens, the poet who was of course also a lawyer and who very sensibly worked all his life in the warm and dry in the Hartford Insurance Company in Connecticut. My scene of waste made me think in particular of Stevens' late poem, The Plain Sense of Things, in which he questions what can be salvaged from failure and from the autumn and winter of our lives. After the leaves have fallen, we return to a plain sense of things. It is as if we had come to the end of the imagination, inanimate in an inert savoir. It is difficult even to choose the adjective for this blank cold, this sadness without cause. The great structure has become a minor house. No turban walks across the lessened floors. The greenhouse never so badly needed paint. The chimney is 50 years old and slants to one side. A fantastic effort has failed, a repetition in a repetitiousness of men and flies. Yet the absence of the imagination had itself to be imagined. The great pond, the plain sense of it without reflections, leaves, mud, water like dirty glass, expressing silence of a sort, silence of a rat come out to sea, the great pond and its waste of lilies, all this had to be imagined as an inevitable knowledge, required as a necessity requires. The sadness without cause, the great structure that has become a minor house, the fantastic effort that has failed, and the absence of the imagination that has itself to be imagined, required as a necessity requires, these are some of the themes I would like to address this evening. One of the things I lost in the rain were all of my notes on William Trevor, who, as you know, died in November last year, aged 88, and who, during his lifetime, won the Whitbread Prize three times, was four times shortlisted for the Booker Prize, was often talked of as a potential Nobel laureate, and who, as, as Aileen suggested, and perhaps most importantly for us here tonight, was a graduate of this college, though I made little of and contributed nothing to university life, he remarked, I think rather winningly, in his book Excursions in the Real World. Although he did, I think he met his wife Jane here. So universities are remain good for something. Um, though he had lived in England since 1954, mostly in Devon, he was someone who considered himself, in his own words, to be Irish in every vein. I am therefore, unlike William Trevor, in just about every regard, not least that I am, or at least appear to be, entirely English to my fingertips. Nonetheless, one of the advantages of being a writer is that one gets to choose one's literary precursors, whatever their age, their race, their gender, and wherever they happen to be from. The imagination is freeborn, and I long ago chose William Trevor as one of mine. I've just been, I've just been reading um, Slaughterhouse Five, no, Kurt Vonnegut, 
and the trowel from the Dorians in Slaughterhouse Five, who are the kind of alien beings who abduct Billy Pilgrim and take him up to this world that the kind of where they're both in prison and kind of his, his mind roams free. The trowel from the Dorians believe that all humans have seven parents. Um, <clears throat> it is difficult to know exactly what makes a writer, but it is safe to assume, I think, that Trevor inherited some of his qualities from his parents, whom he describes with great fondness in his autobiographical essay, Field of Battle. My father was a big, healthy-looking man with a brown bald head and brown tobacco fingers. He liked to tell stories rather than jokes, Stories about people or events that amused him. He smoked sweet afternoons, drank anything he was offered, and had a flair for picking winners, always turning first to the sports pages of the Irish Times and the Cork Examiner. My mother was tiny, capricious and beautiful, firm of purpose, fiery and aloof, with a sharp tongue and an eccentric sense of humour that often took you by surprise. She had a faint Northern Irish accent and used to say she supported the North when in the South and the South when in the North. She had a weakness for Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. From his yarn-spinning father, Trevor may perhaps have inherited what one might call his nicotine-stained style and a winning eye for a loser and from his mother, perhaps her northern slyness and restraint, and a sentimental fondness for a soft shoe shuffle. I thought I might take the example of just one of Trevor's novels, Death in Summer, which was published in 1998, and which just happens to be set in my own home county of Essex, to try and work out the exact nature of Trevor's inheritance and my own and in particular to try and explain how a great writer transforms what might in life be merely a series of luckless episodes into a huge alas. To start with the title of the novel, which seems to me characteristically Trevorian, death in summer is not the same thing at all as a death in the summer. The first is irresistible, the other would be merely unfortunate. And the more accurate plural, deaths in summer, sounds too much like hair splitting. Nor is death in summer anything like, say, death in winter, or indeed in springtime, or in fall. Trevor always casts his work using infernal heat rather than with gusts or showers or with chills. His outlook may be perpetually gloomy, but his prose is persistently bright. He is the optimist's pessimist. <laughs> Setting a typical scene in his first novel, The Old Boys, there was in fact an earlier book, A Standard of Behaviour, which was published in 1958, which, which Trevor disliked so much that he disowned, which is one of the things I rather admire. But there's a kind, there's a kind of ruthlessness about him um, that, that some of us perhaps don't possess. Um, he begins The Old Boys, The heat continued and increased. It turned the remaining green of the lawns in Crimea Road into a uniform brown. It turned the sun lounge at the Rimini into a hothouse. It blistered the backs of Mr. Knox's hands. It ripened the bulging tomatoes. 
in a prose that is itself neither ripe nor blistering, which is in fact almost the opposite, mellow and soothing, thoroughly tobacco-y, Trevor summons up his oppressive atmospheres and twists them into dark episodes and stories. His work is a useful reminder that Sturm und Drang has nothing to do with bad weather. Not that Sturm und Drang obviously does have something to do with bad weather, but in this context. Death in Summer epitomizes both the import and the various outer-facing aspects of Trevor's work, in which the heat and light of high summer uncover and expose and almost always lead to a death. The novel The Boarding House, for example, has a beautiful scorched earth opening. I am dying, said William Byrd on the night of August the 13th, turning his face towards the wall for privacy. Mr. Byrd's death in summer has long-term consequences for the plot, as does old Mrs. Sinnott's high summer passing in Mrs. Eckdorf in O'Neill's Hotel, which I've been rereading all of these books recently, and Mrs. Eckdorf in O'Neill's Hotel is just fantastic. Uh, in fact, so much are death and summer intertwined in Trevor's work, much as death and sex are often coupled in the work of lesser novelists, that when you read the gleaming opening sentences of other people's worlds, perhaps Trevor's most darkly disturbing book, you know straight away that something horrible is going to happen. All over the Gloucestershire countryside, the poppies that summer were delicate on sunny banks, cow parsley and campion profuse. The japonica bloomed as it hadn't for years in the garden of Swan House, as if already celebrating the wedding there was to be. In the novel, Julia Ferndale is about to marry a chap called Francis Tite, and her dream is about to turn into a nightmare. Similarly, at the beginning of Death in Summer, when you're told that Thaddeus Davenant has just buried his young wife on the very day that the summer heat wave has begun, you know instantly that things can only get worse. The story of Death in Summer is briefly this. Thaddeus and Letitia have been married for six years. They have a six-month-old daughter, Georgina. They live in a big old house in rural Essex, though Trevor's Essex, I fancy, rather resembles the English and indeed possibly the Irish Midlands. It is a, perhaps a zone rather than an actual place, an inner space, a land that time forgot. And they live with Maidman, their hawk-faced housekeeper, and Zenobia, their rosy-cheeked cook. Now, Trevor often uses stock characters to thicken his place. It's like he's making a minestrone. He's, he's thickening it all the time. Thaddeus is a market gardener who dresses in tweeds, is prone to melancholy, and who is a solitary even in marriage. Letitia, in contrast, is described as a person of almost wayward generosity. She is sweet, old-fashioned, and wears her hair plaited in coils. Their lives are just about ticking over, and it is late one summer afternoon when Trevor reaches in and stops the clock. In the kitchen, Zenobia's sponge cake cooled on a wire tray, and when Georgina was in the house again and Maiden was laying the dining room table, Thaddeus pushed the lawnmower over the cobbles of the yard. The clock in the hall was striking six when the two policemen came. And policemen often arrive in Trevor's stories and novels um, 
unexpectedly, as policemen, of course, are wont to do. Letitia, in the novel, has been killed, hit by a car whilst out cycling. After the funeral, that is, sets about interviewing prospective nannies to look after baby Georgina. And one of the interviewees is Petty. Never trust a character called Petty. And all of Trevor's characters might be called Petty. And she's a young orphan girl from London with a sorry background and a few forged references and certificates. She falls in love with Thaddeus, and to add to his troubles, he also finds himself in receipt of begging letters from a Mrs. Ferry, a woman who is wretched with stomach ulcers, with whom he had a relationship some 17 years previously. Mrs. Ferry claims she is dying. She is most certainly guilty of what Trevor calls the sin of profitable nostalgia, of resurrecting one or two good moments so that in the circumstances as they were now, the past might be honoured with a check. <laughs> Trevor knows all there is to know about profitable nostalgia. What he's done in Death in Summer is to set in motion the heavy swinging pendulum of a good old-fashioned 19th century melodrama. The book indeed enacts a rhythm that will be wonderfully familiar to readers of Trevor's work. The prose characteristically beats with both meaning and insignificance. A typical sentence charms itself almost to sleep before suddenly waking with a start. This is a, this is a typical Trevor sentence. It's quite brilliant. A drizzling Thursday in June had been affected since early morning by unusual inquietude. As a literary performer, Trevor is something of a hammy old stager. Drama and excitements emerge suddenly and unexpectedly out of nowhere. Apparently humdrum lives conceal extreme states of being. He seems to have hit upon this style, this manner, his pattern, and all of his various tricks, his combination of a super smooth prose and often quite extravagant plotting, almost from the very beginning. And it's perhaps because of the apparently simple and consistent virtues of his work, there were always 20 novels and novellas, around about a dozen books of stories, as deeply disturbing as they are short and sweet that he was applauded and adored by readers and almost entirely ignored by critics. Though I should say, with the exception, I should hastily note, of my learned colleague here, Paul Delaney, who has edited a collection on Trevor's work, it's absolutely excellent, on Trevor's work, which situates him within a contemporary national and international context and which brilliantly explores his writing in relation to issues of marginality, migration, exile and displacement, defining exactly what one might describe perhaps as Trevor's post-colonial melancholy, an aspect of his work that lies far outside my own area of expertise, except perhaps in a strictly personal sense. I'm thinking about the rugby there again. <laughs> <coughs> Trevor has or had almost nothing in common, it seems to me, with either the mechanical populists or the earnest highbrows among his contemporaries, but rather belong to a tradition that stretches back to those great French and Russian writers he so admired and who sought to combine the summer 
with the drama. His detailed, determinedly low-key descriptions of his character's petty schemings and his persistent, serious, and corresponding attempt to prove the existence of a moral universe in the absence of any compelling evidence of such is a major achievement. I was thinking, he's often compared to Chekhov, but the, I think, as I've been rereading them recently, I think the comparisons that sprang to my mind are, are writers more like people, say, like Thomas Bernhardt, or even um, the Romanian uh, philosopher and kind of uh, acquaintance of Beckett's, Emil Chiorat, people who, who kind of um, are prepared to face hard facts in the face in a way that sometimes Chekhov, you know, at the end of his stories, would swerve away from that. His methods may be well-worn, but they are also instructive, particularly, one might add, in an age of bluster, falsehoods, and foolish grand gestures. So here is how I think he, did, he does it. This is how, as far as I can tell, William Trevor does what great writers often do, which is to present us with that which is widely known, but which goes unacknowledged. Thaddeus in Death in Summer, like nearly all of Trevor's characters, is familiar with defeat. He is not only shy and reticent, but also comes to realise that he did not love his wife and feels burdened with bringing up their child. He is unanchored and out at sea. He is floating through life, and in this he is not alone. Trevor's characters tend neither to sink nor swim. They tend to bob around the average before drifting out inexorably towards crisis. They are neither rich nor poor, neither brilliant nor stupid, and often neither English nor Irish, but rather hyphen-swaying Anglo-Irish. They tell each other pointless lies. In other people's worlds, Francis Tite pretends that his parents were killed in a train crash. They, in fact, live in an old people's home in Hampton Wick. His characters labour under misapprehensions. In the boarding house, poor Mr. Obd, he's a brilliant character, Nigerian character, Mr. Obd, has been leaving flowers for Annabelle Tonks for 14 years in the mistaken belief that she is his girlfriend. His characters misunderstand each other. O'Shea, the faithful hotel porter in Mrs. Eckdorf, takes the notion that Mrs. Eckdorf has come to buy the decaying hotel, which is not at all. Hopes fail, marriages collapse, or are already collapsed, sex is horrible, or ludicrous, or often both. The major in the boarding house, for example, remembers a school friend, Bicey Jones, who picked up a motherly French tart in Piccadilly, and that while Bicey Jones was extra this is another listen to this sentence. While Bicey Jones was extracting this is how he does it. Just watch the while by the while Bicey Jones was extracting his money's worth, this elderly French woman had occupied herself by squeezing blackheads from his face. <laughs> <laughs> Conversations stumble and characters endlessly suffer petty humiliations and embarrassments. They are damaged goods, or in Thaddeus's case, in Trevor's words, shoddy goods, estranged from themselves and from each other. 
All our conversations, observes Mrs. Jarraby and the old boys, are ridiculous. We speak without communication. This is all pretty pathetic and perfectly normal. These people are a lot like you and me. Well, I speak for myself here, obviously. Um, having set and peopled these scenes of quiet desperation, what Trevor then goes on to do is to turn up the temperature. And it's then that things really start to get interesting and uncomfortable. It's then that he proves that he's as much his father's as his mother's son. That he is not merely a cold-eyed cataloguer of the variety of human weaknesses, but a twinkle-eyed schemer and spinner of tales. It's then that he stops being merely a Goncourt and becomes a Balzac du jour. With his character's suspicions in a state of permanent semi-arousal, and that kind of the, the, the idea of the semi-aroused sentence in Trevor is something that I, I could have said more about, but I'm not going to. But it's very reminiscent, if you look at the way he does things, very reminiscent of what Roald Dahl does in his strips. Very similar effect that he creates, which gives it that, that, that kind of tension. So in this state of permanent semi-arousal, terrible secrets begin to emerge. Mr. Chuk, for example, in the 1971 Miss Gomez and the Brethren, which is another, when you, read, when you go back and look at these books, they're quite remarkable. Miss Gomez and the Brethren learns that he is not his daughter's father. People begin spying on each other. A private detective is hired in the old boys. Petty in Death in Summer lurks outside the house spying on Thaddeus. There are cases of mistaken identity, multiple cases of mistaken identity in the books and the stories. Edward, the protagonist in Trevor's 1966 novel, The Love Department, mistakes a woman's husband for her lover. Which is always a bad mistake. <laughs> These faint rumblings, like the memorable description of the erupting of gas in Mrs. Chuke's more than ample stomach in Miss Gomez, a bubble of gas that had developed during the night in Mrs. Chuke's stomach, rose to her mouth and noisily escaped. These rumblings herald huge and unpleasant eructations in plot. There are sudden acts of petty violence and revenge. He's brilliant on this. Petty violence. Mr. Swabby Boynes, in The Old Boys, cuts little holes in his hospital bedsheets after the nurses have laughed at him when he upset a jigsaw. Mrs. Hoop, the charwoman in the love department, this is one of my favourites, spits on her employer's wedding photo, watching the trickle of saliva course down the glass, blurring and listen to this again, blurring and distorting the face of the bride. Study sticks a pin in Nurse Clock's arm in the boarding house. When Eve in the love department tells her husband James she's leaving him, his hands pressed the glass he held and pressed it harder until it cracked and broke into splinters. His blood came fast, and brandy stung his open flesh. The violence then gradually escalates. And I was thinking this week, we know and have long acknowledged the great poets of the Troubles, um, but I think Trevor is perhaps the great unacknowledged novelist of the Troubles. If you read the books from the 70s and 80s, um, his work is... A, a kind of, it's a, when you read it, it's a kind of atrocity exhibition. It's so shocking when you go back to them if you haven't read them for a while. Accidental deaths turn out to be murders. In a, particular, in a series of particularly nasty short stories, 
the blue dress, the time of year, and the teddy bear's picnic from the 1981 collection Beyond the Pale. Indeed, some of the stories in the collection Family Sins are almost too horrible for me to relate to you now, the incidents that, that he describes. But suffice it to say that the events at Drimaclean in the story of that name are described rightly as appalling even by Trevor's standards. Thaddeus, in Death in Summer, is probably lucky to get away with only having his baby snatched. So, the shocking plot, with plot twist is to be expected. Everyone in Trevor's work is capable of behaving irrationally or unpleasantly or both, and almost everyone is on the make, casually and perpetually. The florist in the boarding house, for example, cons poor Mr. Overcharging him for flowers. It's just a, it's a nonsensical act of, of kind of unpleasantness. And the unpleasant acts of unpleasantness and kind of pointless degradation are, are there the whole time. The feckless Morrissey blags drinks off tourists in Mrs. Eckdorf. Creepy young Timothy Gedge in The Children of Dinman is a blackmailer in training. Septimus in the love department is a heartless serial seducer. The sad and the mad and the dangerous to know are forever encroaching. Thaddeus innocently, innocently invites tragedy into his home when he interviews Petty for the job as nanny. All the novels and stories thrive on such chance meetings, the collision between unsuspecting, if not entirely innocent persons. The multi-prize winning Felicia's Journey, about a chubby serial murderer living in the English Midlands who befriends a wandering young Irish girl, being only the most famous and grisly example. If nothing else, Trevor's work is a shocking reminder of the terrible needs of strangers. And what begins with a coincidence or a chance liaison often ends the same way. In the love department, for example, the hapless, gentle Edward inadvertently kills the dastardly Septimus. Now, this is quite extraordinary. The ending of this book is extraordinary. So Septimus gets killed. Now, Edward inadvertently kills Septimus, who gets knocked down by a taxi which has swerved and mounted the pavement. I was thinking about this today, obviously. Who gets knocked down by a taxi which has swerved and mounted the pavement in order to avoid a man who has stepped into the road to pick up a pair of gloves which have been dropped by Edward as he cycles past on his way out of the novels. It's a most peculiar kind of deus ex machina um, in, in the suburbs at the end of the novel. And the endings of the novels, I think, often prove to be a bit of a problem because there is simply no easy escape from Trevor's fictional world. The big houses that loom large in nearly all his books are more like castles or prisons than homes. Thaddeus's exquisitely Victorian titled Quincunx's House in Death in Summer is appropriately large and faded and tattered, approached by a drive darkened by high laurels and hydrangeas. And each novel tends to build upon the last in small and strange ways, creating a huge, bewildering labyrinth of reference and cross-reference. Rereading the books, you often get the unsettling feeling that someone has just switched the signs on the road out of the twilight zone, and you find yourself driving back again into the godforsaken town you thought you'd just left behind, and you are stuck forever, either in dreary South London or in rural Ireland. His work becomes a world so vast 
that you can barely glimpse its edges. In the boarding house, for example, Trevor mentions in passing two old men in Wimbledon who are dreaming about their school days and discussing their memories over breakfast. And these two nameless men, you suddenly realise, are the Mr. Cridley and Mr. Soul who you've only just said goodbye to in the old boys which, is, which preceded it. Going up with Edward to the fifth floor of a certain building and then into room 305 for a job interview in the love department, you might well suffer from a sense of deja vu because you've only just left the very same room on the very same floor, but for a different reason, it, again, in the old boys. In death in summer, the connecting threads are very fine, but they're still there. There's lots of them. The whole thing is it's quite remarkable when you, if, if you go through. Petty in, in death in summer at one point remembers a gift of a pencil sharpener in the shape of a globe of the world, the very same present that Eugene gives his mother every year in Mrs. Eckdorf. Now, this is either a sign of unconscious self-repetition, which obviously is, is, is not impossible, or it's a signal from a writer who wants to leave the reader in no doubt that he is in total control. His firm authorial hand a comfort and irritation and perhaps something of a tease. Trevor is certainly not above a little joke. His supporting characters, for example, if not always entirely characterful, are at least always memorable. Their names almost ludicrous, like something from Gilbert and Sullivan, or Dickens, or perhaps a cartoon. Captain and Mrs. Poach, The Clingers, Mr. Linderfoot, Atlas Flynn and Mrs. Bassett, who owns a pet shop, Dr. Tainguard, Major Eel, Mr. Scriven, Mrs. Slape, etc. It goes on and on. They're brilliant. There's much use of not in a week foreshadowing and parallelism in all of his books, and much wielding of a superior hawk's-eye perspective. He remains a hovering presence throughout his work, like one of Vingbender's brooding, overcoated angels, padding and peering into the confusion of private lives, forever tuned in to the constant babel of interior voices. A final measure of the great achievement of Trevor's work, I think, is the extent to which his carefully controlled descriptions of a sad and suffocating world arouse corresponding anxiety reactions in his readers. And Death in Summer certainly has the faintly giddying and vaguely sickening effect of all his novels. For certainly I found it so, as I read the book in the damp ruins of my shed, which now houses only me, a chair, and an old school desk, a great structure that has become a minor house, a fantastic effort that has failed. I wanted to end with a word about love, as I began, and there is, rather helpfully, a cheap scent worn by several of Trevor's women characters across several novels and some of the stories. And it's a perfume that he calls portentously but appropriately love in a mist. <laughs> a sickly fragrance with top notes, I fancy, of solicitousness, barely acknowledged desire and terrible anxiety. But there is also a faint, a very faint whiff in there of what I suppose we might call hope. A breath of fresh air with the power to stir the ash heap of death and summer, and indeed of death in summer, 
where at the very end of the novel, at dusk, this is quite beautiful, at dusk, amidst the faded flowers of his garden, Thaddeus senses the fresh scent of moisture. Just that and no more. There is nothing else. There's no great uplift or revelation. Trevor always resists the easy way out. And that little dab of scent, that hint of hope, I think is almost a cliché, and I think it is of the very essence of Trevor's remarkable work. It is not much, it is almost too much, it is enough, and it is never enough. Alas. <laughs>